Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Reading is from Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing walls of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile to both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Each year, each year during Advent, our church adopts the tradition of an Advent wreath, lighting one candle each Sunday as we count down to Christmas. The continuous lighting of candles on the wreath throughout Advent signifies the increase of light pouring into the world as Christ's arrival draws near. Lighting the candles one by one over the four weeks pushes back the darkness, and by Christmas Day, the fully illuminated wreath radiates a brightness to serve as a reminder that the light of the world came to defeat darkness forever and dwell with his people. The second candle of Advent symbolizes peace and reminds us that Christ himself is our peace. Let's light this candle now and remember that Christ is the Prince of Peace. Let's continue in worship through prayer this morning. Our Father, who is in heaven, we look to you now. We look to you with expectancy. We look to you with longing. We look to you with wonder.
We look to you as our hope, the one that we're waiting for. We look to you as our peace. And Father, this morning I ask that our offering of praise, our sacrifice of worship, would bring honor to your name. I ask that, Holy Spirit, as you reorient our lives, our minds, our thoughts, our hearts, our desires, that your will would be done through us. And Jesus, as we look to you, the author and the perfecter of our faith, I ask this morning that your kingdom, your reign, your rule would come. I ask that we would be a people marked by a longing, a desire for your presence, that we want nothing else except you, God. I pray that this morning, if, if, we don't, it, if and when we don't have those desires, you would change them. You would reorient our desires. You would tune our hearts to sing your praise. Father, right now, a lot of our hearts are wandering. They're wandering in pain and darkness. They're wandering in anxiety. And we feel lost. We feel without hope and without peace in this world. So Holy Spirit, I ask right now that you would just give us a glimmer. You'd give us a, a nudge. You would direct our eyes to the light, to you. So that having eyes to see, we might see that you will never leave us and you will never forsake us. Father, you say that mercy and goodness will follow us all the days of our lives. So remind us of the love that you have for us, we pray. Remind us of the light that you bring into the darkness as we celebrate Advent, reminding ourselves that you are the hope and you are our peace. We pray all these things. We cry out all these things. We ask that our worship would be pleasing to you, that the thoughts of our hearts and the meditation of our the thoughts that, and our meditation of our mouths would be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. We pray all this by the power of the Holy Spirit who prays for us. And all God's people said, Amen. It is a good thing to be in the house of the Lord together. Um, and I was actually going to start by talking about uh, God's, Jesus' name being Emmanuel, and then Tori took, uh, took, stole the punch from me, so thank you for that, Tori. No, I, uh, you know, in Matthew, at the end of Matthew 1, Jesus says, er, no, Jesus doesn't say, he wasn't born yet. The angel of the Lord says to Mary, you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, and it doesn't mean that Jesus has multiple names, it just means that it's a title, 
And in this season of Advent, we remember that God is with us. We are prone to wander, prone to be deceived by the enemy, prone to live stories and live lies that other people give us that are not true, and it leads us to death and destruction and chaos of all kinds. And this season in particular, we stop and we say, I'm, I, we are choosing to remember as a community, we are choosing to remember year after year, week after week, day after day, that the Lord does not leave us. He's still here. Jesus is here with us right now. God is with us. And he enters into your pain, your sin, your brokenness, and he looks at you with love. He loves you. Last week we talked about hope and how hope, to hope means to wait, to wait expectantly. And specifically we talked about how every story answers four questions. Why am I here? What went wrong? What's the solution? And what's the ideal or redeemed future look like? And the story of redemption is one that we enter into every season of Advent where we remind ourselves that this is why, according to scriptures, why we're here, what went wrong, what the solution is, and, and how, what the redeemed and the renewed and the ideal future looks like. If you, haven't, if you weren't here last week, I really encourage you to take a, take a listen to that sermon. It's on our podcast that we have on Spotify or YouTube or Apple Podcasts, wherever you stream that. And, uh, because all th- these four weeks of Advent really tie in together, and they kind of build off one of another as well. So as the year uh, winds down, uh, and the New Year is just around the corner, which is insane. felt like we just celebrated New Year. And um, uh, we, we decided to, to give you guys an opportunity and um, there is power, we know as a church, and we believe that there is power in the word of God. There, uh, the scriptures, Paul says, are able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And the entire Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Jesus is the center of it all. It's authoritative, it's inspired, it is God-breathed, it is the word of God. And there is actually an even greater power when the people of God together read the scriptures, talk about the scriptures, rather than just like, you know, the, the church isn't designed to be like, I'm going to give you your own personal spirituality, and then you go from there. The church is a body. We're all one. And so together, when we read the scriptures and we talk about the scriptures, there's actually more power in that. So uh, we actually, at AGC, we decided to give you guys a little reading plan for 2024. Uh, and outside, um, on the Connect Center table after this, you are invited to, this is a complete invitation, you don't have to do this, you're invited to take this. This is a reading plan for 2024. Now, um, it's completely free, zero dollars. Uh, it's for you, it's also completely invitational. If you already have something that you wanna do next year and you're like, I wanna do the Bible in a year, or I wanna do this reading plan or that reading plan, do that, like that's awesome. We want to be in the scripture, but this in particular might be different. It's called bread and I'll get there in a second. This might be different than um, what we could be used to. Uh, this is not a Bible in a year, it doesn't go through it. It actually goes through probably only like a third of the Bible in a year. It's not chronological. It's not even based on themes. This follows the church calendar, actually. So uh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, the church said, hey, let's have a lectionary or a reading every single day, every single week of different scriptures. So it does an Old Testament, Hebrew Bible, a psalm, a gospel, and an epistle. And I know that sounds like a lot, but it's like only a few verses of each. And the point is the point then, the reason why we're offering this rather than like a Bible in a year thing or like a thematic book study or whatever, the point is, is you read less 
but you're, it's designed to create more space to sit with the word and to sit with God. So a lot of plans which are good, I mean, I just, I'm finishing up the Bible in a year, but it is so fast, and you read like chapters, and I was like, I can't, I can't keep up. So this is like, you know, 10 verses, 20 verses maybe, and you're supposed to, it's designed to just, you sit with it, you invite God into the space to teach you, to bring out something that he wants to teach you, and you reflect on it, and you write about it, and you pray about it. And actually, there's this little instructional at the beginning. It's, it's called BREAD, and it's an acronym. And it stands for, the B stands for be still. I know, it's technically two words, but we didn't want to say B-S-R-E-A-D. So it stands for BREAD. Bre- B stands for be still. Uh, R stands for read. E stands for encounter. A is apply, and D is devote. And all the instructionals are in there, but I just want to read this paragraph uh, to you to kind of give you a, a, um, a foretaste of what it could be. How to use bread. Bread is a way to prayerfully engage with the scriptures to hear God's voice. As a church, we want to slow down every day, to slow down every day in order to be present with the spirit rather than race through the text in order to get to the next thing. We long for communion and union, not just information or motivation. This spiritual reading plan, bread, follows the Revised Common Lectionary and most days includes a reading from the Hebrew Bible, the Psalms, the Epistles, and a Gospel. Then it says this, what might happen if every day we as a church, this is us, AGC, we as a church community refuse to eat the bread of anxious toil, as Psalm 127 says, and instead feasted on the bread of life that truly satisfies. Practice this a few times and it will be beneficial. Practice this over a lifetime and it will be transformational. So this is for you. Please only take it if you're actually going to use it. We have enough for um, all adults and like youth to, to, to have one themselves and you can go outside right after and it's completely free and if we need to order more, we can order more. It's actually a fast turnaround. It only took like a week or a week and a half or something like that. So this is for you. I would just highly encourage you to take this, to use it and there's instructions and it just goes through, um, through the readings for that year. So that's for you. It's called bread and uh, Give us this day our daily bread, Jesus says. So we are in the Advent season, and we are celebrating and remembering the first Advent of Christ in the Incarnation. Advent just simply means arrival. And we also not just remember the first Advent of Christ, the arrival of Christ, we actually celebrate and look forward to the second Advent of Christ, or the second arrival of Christ in glory. Last week we talked about hope. There is hope in Christ, and in fact, Christ is the only thing that gives us hope that hope that one day every wrong will be made right. Everything that has gone wrong, every broken relationship, every death, every anxiety, every fear will be undone and made right when Christ comes again. This week, we are looking at peace, peace, peace. Uh, And peace in the uh, Hebrew language actually just means the word whole or complete. Not like whole, there's a hole in something. Whole like W-H-O-L-E. So to have peace, what biblical peace means is biblical peace is a wholeness or a completeness. Here's an example. Uh, Solomon was uh, finishing the temple and it was incomplete and then he finally put the last brick in. I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but he finally like, you know, finished the temple and it was called shalom or peace or whole or complete. The idea of peace in the, in the Bible is not so much tranquility or the absence of conflict as much as it is a wholeness or a completeness. 
Therefore, a lack of peace would be what? Unwholeness, something that is not whole or incompleteness. And we feel this a lot in our lives. We, we feel this like, nah, this isn't, I'm not, this relationship isn't complete, it's not whole. This longing in my heart, in my life, it's not, it's not satisfied yet. It's not met yet. There's this lack of peace, of wholeness, of completeness, of shalom. And so today our primary teaching will be from Ephesians 2, as we just read earlier. But as we know, the authors of the New Testament, especially Paul, they didn't make up anything on their own. The New Testament cannot, is not a thing without the Old Testament. I was reading recently Eugene Peterson, and he said, if you skip the Old Testament, it's like the equivalent of skipping 39 chapters of a 40-chapter book. None of the New Testament authors are creative, or are intuitive. They're creative, but they're not making anything up. So especially Paul, in order to understand Paul and the text that we read today from Ephesians 2, we have to go back to the beginning because Paul and all the, Old Te- all the New Testament writers spent hours and hours just meditating and thinking about and contemplating the Hebrew Bible. So that being said, if you haven't already, which you haven't because you don't know where I'm going to turn, I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. As you're turning there, I'll, I'll just remind us that Genesis is less a recipe for how the heavens and earth were created and more a theology and description of God's power and love and plan for humanity. And in Genesis 1 and 2 in particular, we get two different narratives of creation. We get a picture of a good creation, a whole and a complete creation. It's packed with purpose and it's packed with potential where the relationships, this is the key, the relationship between God and humanity is at peace, it's whole, it's complete, and the relationship between humans, humans and other humans, are whole, complete, at peace. God and humans dwell in harmony and peace in the cosmos. So let's take a look at this good creation. Uh, Genesis chapter one, verse four. Uh, let's go back to verse, well, let's just go to verse 1. Genesis 1, 1. Why not? We've got time for now. <laughs> Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens, or the skies, and the earth, or the land. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw, this is the key phrase we're going to, zoom in on. God saw that the light was, say it out loud, good. God saw that the light was good. Go down to verse 10. Genesis 1 verse 10. God called the dry land earth, or land, and the gathering of the water he called seas, and God saw that it was, say it out loud, good. Uh, Spoiler alert, if you say good for the rest of the time today, that's, you, you got all the answers down. Verse 12. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, trees according to bear, uh, trees bearing fruit with seed according to its kind, and God saw that it was, say it out loud, good. Verse 18, to rule the day and the night, this is the middle of a sentence, but okay, and to separate the light from the darkness, verse 18, the last part of it, and God saw that it was, verse 21, so God created the large sea creatures and every, and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind, and God saw that it was? Verse 25. You guys still with me? Great. Verse 25. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was? 
Yes, last one. Verse 31. God saw all that he had made. This is including humans made in his own image. And it was very good. Good. Good job. That was me to you. It was very good. Seven times, seven times in the story of Genesis 1, God sees that something is good. Now, what does it mean for something to be good? Most scholars argue, sorry, that's the word, argue that the word good and the word peace are synonymous. As in, to be good is to be whole. It's packed with potential. Think of the potential of the animals, right? God gave them potential. Hey, I want you to keep creating. I want you to inhabit the seas. I want you to inhabit the land. Think about the humans. You're filled with potential. I want you to rule. I want you to multiply. I want you to co-rule with me for eternity. And they're filled with purpose. Purpose and potential is what it means to be good according to Genesis 1. Now the question is, was everything good in God's creation of Genesis 1? Feels like you're supposed to say yes, but it also feels like a trick question. And it is a trick question because the answer is no. Not everything was good in creation. Genesis 2, verse 18. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not, say it out loud, it is not good for the man to be alone. But I thought God created everything perfectly and it was awesome and Genesis 1 and 2 is the ideal. Well, yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. But good doesn't mean without evil. Good means what? Packed with potential, packed with purpose, packed with wholeness, something that is not incomplete. And if in Genesis 1, God told man, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, in Genesis 2, he said it's not good for the man to be alone. Why? This isn't biology class, but you can't be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it if you are the only person around, right? Adam was called to, to rule, to, to, to do all these things, and yet in Genesis 2, he's alone. And so God is like, well, it's actually not good, meaning what? It's not whole. It's not complete. There's something missing here. And so God puts him in a deep sleep. Let's keep reading. Um, uh, verse 21. So the Lord caused the deep sleep of chapter 2 to come over the man, and he slept. God took, his side, uh, took a part of his side and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the side he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. Verse 23. And the man said, this one at last at last. Why did he say at last? He said at last because God showed him all the animals and he's like, this isn't going to work out. So at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one would be called woman for she was taken away or she was taken from man. Verse 24, this is why a man leaves, literally abandons his father and mother and bonds to his wife and they become one flesh. They become one flesh. Now, um, this phrase, they become one flesh, contrary to popular belief, does not mean um, sexual relations. It does not mean that. There are words for that in Hebrew. In fact, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Adam knew his wife Eve, and they conceived. Uh, so-and-so knew his wife. They were intimate. This phrase, one flesh, is, is a familial phrase. Abraham actually uses it of his son Isaac, and Isaac uses it of his son Jacob. They are now my one flesh. So to be one flesh, according to Genesis 1 and the rest of the Genesis narrative, is, is not what we kind of tend to think of it as, you know, when we read this passage and it's like, oh, this is what one flesh means. No, it means that you are now family. It means that you have each other's backs. 
It means, it means that you will the ultimate good of that person. It means that you would give anything for them, and likewise they would give anything for you. To become one flesh is to do all of those things, which means that one flesh can happen between not a married couple, right? Like I said, Abraham called his son one flesh, and like there are familiar, familial dynamics to this phrase one flesh, which means you can be one flesh with somebody who's not your spouse. In, in the Old Testament, it's, it's your family, and specifically, it's the family of God, the family of Abraham. To become one flesh means to be in that family. It means they share a connection with each other that they don't share with anybody else. And it actually is the ideal for all humanity. Think about peace again. The word peace means wholeness. It means completeness, right? And the result of actually Adam seeing Eve for the first time, the, the man seeing the woman for the first time was this aha moment, all this longing, this incompleteness, this lack of wholeness is now fulfilled because now together we can image God. Now together we can fill the potential and the purpose that God has called us to. Verse 25, after he keeps going on, verse 25, both the man and his wife were naked yet felt no shame. They were naked. This, this means far more than just being without clothes. This means vulnerable. They were vulnerable with each other. They knew each other. They didn't have to hide. Again, if peace is this idea of wholeness, what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is peace. There is a wholeness on two fronts. There's a wholeness between God and man, right? God is walking with man and man is walking with God. They are together. There is wholeness. There is completeness. There is peace. But not only is there a wholeness and completeness and peace between God and man, there is also a wholeness and completeness of peace between man and the woman, or all humanity. In other words, to be at peace means to have those relationships in your life, whether through, with God and with others, to become one. They were completely themselves and they were unashamed. Now, how long did this peace last? This wholeness last, this completeness last. Not very long. What happened? Sin. Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman uh, said to the serpent, we may eat from any of the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Quick little caveat here. Both the serpent and the woman are misquoting God. God gave the command to Adam before Eve was there, which means that Adam mishandled the word of God as he spoke it to Eve. She is quoting what she knows to be true. God said, you can't do this, you can't do this, and you can't touch it, otherwise you will die. She wasn't there, which means who told her the command? Adam. And what is the serpent really good at? Misquoting God. Did God really say that? Verse four, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, verse five, in fact, God knows that when, you're, uh, uh, that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing, say it out loud, good and evil. Here's the irony. Here's the, the, 
the, the serpent, the enemy is so, so, so good at deceiving us because what is ironic about what he said? He said, you will be like God. How were they made? In the image of God. Meaning what? They're already like God. The serpent, when he comes to you, this, when he comes to you and he said, did God really say? What he's telling you is that you are actually not made in the image of God and God doesn't love you. God doesn't have your best interest in mind. And we know from scriptures, it is very good. Paul calls us holy and beloved. We are now children of God, co-heirs with Christ. Jesus now is our brother, our Lord, our king, our everything. And the serpent will always say, but, but not really though. He attacks her identity first. You're, you're gonna be like God. It makes her assume that she's not like God. So the woman saw, verse six, the woman saw that the tree was Let's try that again. The woman saw that the tree was good. The only other person to see that the tree, to see that anything was good up until this point, is God. And for food and delightful to look at, and it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then here, verse seven is, we're going to zoom in on. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. If peace is wholeness, completeness, shalom, peace with one another, what is the first, the first consequence of sin in Genesis 3? A broken relationship between people who are supposed to be one. Sin breaks relationships, period. You feel that disconnect between you and that one person? you feel that lack of wholeness between your relationships, it is always, always a result of sin. The first consequence, according to scriptures in Genesis 3, the first consequence of sin is you looking at somebody else and saying, oh, I don't like our differences, I'm scared. I'm, I'm vulnerable in front of you, what if you take advantage of my vulnerability? And so you hide yourself from them. You sew the fig leaves together and you say, well, I can't, we can't do this anymore. There is a lack of peace there is a lack of wholeness, there is a lack of completeness. And this isn't just between Adam and Eve, this is between every living being since Genesis three on. So the first consequence is a brokenness between two people, right? The second consequence, verse eight, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze and they hid from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden, verse nine. So the Lord called out to the man and said, where are you? Not a location question, but a question of identifying yourself. Verse 10, he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. The second consequence of sin is what? A brokenness between you and your creator who loves you. You feel that disconnect? I can't talk to God right now, he's mad at me. Oh, I should probably clean myself up before I approach God. Oh, it's about to be Sunday again. It's about to be small group. I guess I should really try to read my Bible and pray a little bit so that God's not mad at me. What is that? That's Genesis 3. That's a lack of wholeness, lack of completeness. That is the result of sin. Sin breaks relationships. And sin is much more a decision that you and I make. It is that, but it's also a force that is trying to take us from the reality of our wholeness and our peace in God. See, peace at its, at, at, at its, fundament, at its most fundamental meaning 
is a wholeness with you and with others and a wholeness with you and with God. And we see that sin just absolutely obliterates that. The relationship with God was broken. What once was whole is now broken and is now fractured. And so the Lord eventually, as you, know, uh, you might know from the rest of Genesis 3, the Lord sends them out of the garden. You can't, you can't be here anymore. You cannot be in my presence. He actually says, don't take from the tree of life and live forever. So I want to, to, um, to send you away. And so he sent them away from the presence of the Lord. Brokenness, incompleteness. Because you see, peace isn't the absence of war. It's not everything going your way. It's not zen. It's wholeness. It's a restoration of what was once lost. It's the resolution of a melody at the end of a song. It's the completion of a building project when everything goes smoothly and then it's finally functional, it's whole, it's complete. It's that wandering family member coming back home, at last being welcomed back into the family with open arms. It's the undoing of injustice and evil and the presence of a family of people who are one flesh, i.e. who care for each other selflessly and generously. But more often than not, you and I, and I, I know I feel this a lot, you feel that lack of peace, that wholeness or that lack of wholeness, that, that longing. I just wish, I wish this relationship would find a resolution. The experience and the feeling of Adam and Eve after they realized that they were missing something because of sin. The experience of David crying out to the Lord, asking him where he is. If you read the Psalms, that's all David's doing. Lord, where are you? Because everybody who's bad is succeeding in life and I think I'm trying to follow you and I'm failing. The lack of peace is the seemingly vain attempts of making and sustaining peace because not everybody else wants it. It's the vanity, it's the feeling of vanity of striving after the wind for a future that may or may not happen. It's the feeling of discord. It's that feeling of something being off between you and, and, and somebody else and you can't quite pin it down but you both know it, you both feel it and you don't wanna bring it up and you really don't want the other person to bring it up either. A lack of peace is the feeling of chaos the chaos in your head, in your heart, in your body, waging war against you, the feeling of betrayal, the experience of loss when you love somebody so much and then they were just gone. Whether they just left for no reason or whether they passed away or you left them, we live outside of Eden or as the cynic in Ecclesiastes puts it, we live under the sun, which means right now there is always going to be a part of us that will not have that wholeness, that completeness. So what's the solution? What does peace look like? How do I get it? Everybody's looking for peace, they just don't know it. How do I get it? Buy more stuff, busy my schedule so I don't have to live with the reality of my anxiety and crippling depression? Well, if the absence of peace is chaos, division, incompleteness, lack of wholeness, and a broken relationship between God and between others, and the presence of peace is order, unity, completeness, wholeness, and a restored relationship between God and others, then according to Paul in Ephesians 2, peace is less of a what and more of a who. Ephesians 2 talks about peace not being something that we can muster up with the right mental fortitude or the right amount of practices. Peace is a who. It's a person. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 starts by saying, Paul is talking to the church in Ephesus, and right before this is probably one of the most famous passages in all of Pauline literature where he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but God, being rich in mercy, made you alive. You were once dead, and now you are alive. It's a beautiful passage, but he doesn't stop there. Unfortunately, a lot of people stop there. He keeps going, and here's what he says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. So then, he's talking to Gentiles, Remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. Here's what your life was before Christ. At that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope, and without God in the world. Would you like Paul to say that about you? (laughs) Even if it was true, I'd be like, dude, come on, that's kind of offensive. That's really harsh. But it doesn't end there. Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away, excluded, foreigners, without hope, without God, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. How is he our peace? Think of Genesis 1 while I read this phrase. Who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressing regulations so that he might create okay wait listen to this so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace did you catch that what is Genesis 1 and 2 all about God created Adam, then from the one man he made two, Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, and then from the two he brought them back together again as one, becoming one flesh, putting the needs of others above the needs of yourself, your family. What is Paul saying here that Jesus did? He did that, not just with one person a really long time ago or two people a really long time ago. He did that for all the nations, for everybody who is without God, Remember what the result of sin is? Separation from God. And excluded from the covenants of the promise of Israel. You know what the result of sin is? Separation from others. And in himself, it says that he killed hostility in his flesh. He killed the enmity, the hostility, the dividing wall. So now, he actually is our peace. So when I am in Christ and you are in Christ and somebody else is in Christ and somebody that we will never meet is in Christ and somebody on the completely other side of the world is in Christ and some rich person is in Christ and some poor person is in Christ, whoever it is, if you are in Christ, the two now become one. Oh. You are reconciled to God. Genesis 3 is reversed in Christ. That feeling that you have of God looking at you in disgust, that feeling that you have that Adam and Eve had that said, I have to hide from him because he he doesn't have my best interest in mind. When we listen to the serpent more than we listen to the Holy Spirit, we are living in Genesis 3, but in Christ, because he loved you and still loves you, He gave himself for you. And in his body on the cross, he said, that barrier, that lack of peace, I am actually going to bring it back together. Christ is our peace. Not only will we be reconciled, are we reconciled to God, but we're reconciled with who? With each other. 
Later in, in, in Ephesians chapter four, we don't have time to get there, he says, uh, striving to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, we already have peace, so let's live into it. And peace, notice that peace is not a, a based at all on their circumstances. It's not a what, oh, well, once you get you know, this cush job and you'll be happy, then you'll have peace. No, peace is a person. Jesus is our peace. He didn't leave us. He didn't leave us in our shame and our brokenness and our lack of peace. Just like God didn't leave Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, he, he, God entered in, by the way. He clothed them later. We didn't read that section, but he clothed them with himself, with something that he gave them. Same, same thing with Jesus, that he looks at us in our brokenness and our shame and our disunity, and he says, I am going to give you myself. Now, this isn't easy, because Jesus says in Matthew, blessed are the peacemakers, for they uh, will be called children of God. Peacemaking is very, very difficult because it requires you to enter into something that is not whole, it's not complete. It requires you to enter into something that is broken and say, I already have the peace because Christ is my peace. I have already been made one with God and already been made one with you. And so I have to, we have to talk about this. Peacekeep, it doesn't say blessed are the peacekeepers. Peacekeeping's easy. You just throw things under the rug and you ignore it and you look the other way. It's a blessed are the peacemakers. And what did Jesus do? He was a peacemaker. He entered into the hostility. He entered into the brokenness. And he brought completeness. He brought wholeness. He brought himself. And one day, one day there will be a time, there will be a kingdom of peace where it will be actually better than Genesis 1 and 2. It's not going back to Genesis 1 and 2. It's actually Revelation 21 and 22, the new heavens and the new earth. And what will there be there? Complete wholeness, unity, peace, that feeling that you have of incompleteness, of, of pain, of disunity, of brokenness, of, of your longing for something, that will be met when Jesus returns because every wrong will be made right. Every tear will be held in his hand. And he will be our peace when we are in him. And so to that end, we already have the peace, so we live into peace. We become who we already are. We already have wholeness, so we fight for it. We strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace because Christ himself is our peace. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Thank you.